do it. Yeah, let's have some fun. All right. Uh, so everybody has a podcast, and so I've decided that I'm going to have Bro Research Radio, and obviously, uh, it's the right decision. You know, just have bro stations with other bros. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the first guy I wanted to talk to, and and, and uh, Serbia and I have been kind of back and forth on this for a while. This idea, like I think we. I was a little bit more than two years ago. You were down here. We were training. Uh, we were doing mass, mass one together and I was, we were hooking everybody up to the moxies mm-hmm. and both of you kind of, we both kind of saw how dirty that data was. We we're like, man, we could yeah. probably, we could probably make this say whatever the hell we wanted it to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you took that one step further than me. And now you work in a lab that uses nurse. I mean, yeah, you're looking at mitochondrial function and so when you you sent me a a paper that we've kind of been going back and forth on and you want to explain kind of what people maybe maybe missing with this nurse technology and and kind of what you've learned in those last two years yeah sure so i think that the nears and like i would not consider myself like an expert on this I can't even means. say it right. So that's, yeah. That's, right. <laughs> so it's like, I think like there are people who are like been using this for far longer than I have and know way more than I do. So it's like, you can go look up people like Barstow, David Poole, a lot of guys at K state, um, two of the postdocs in my lab, Jesse Craig, and then Ryan Broxman, like they've been using it for far longer than I have. So they've been really kind of taking me to school with this whole thing. But like the thing that like is getting floated around the interwebs that I see at least, and I'm not like super paying attention to it that much is people using the nears as a way to assess these quote unquote bioenergetic limitations. And so what we have to appreciate with the nears is that it's only giving us a very small snapshot of one aspect of what I would consider the O2 cascade. So how are we getting, oxygen from the atmosphere to the mitochondria and so the nears is essentially this small device for people who aren't familiar with it you can put it on top of a muscle it sends near infrared light down into kind of the muscle in the capillary bed and it's actually measuring the light that's not coming back right because the heme components down there um, absorb different wavelengths of light depending on if they are loaded with oxygen or if they're unloaded and so it gives us a snapshot into what's going on at the tissue kind of capillary level. But the problem is like the only signal in the nears that I am comfortable with right now is the deoxy signal. So like tissue sat is dirty because I think that, now that I think that it's just like the, the oxygenated signal is dirty. With my like it, Yeah. So that's, that's one piece that we have to consider that people don't like to talk about is that, more recent studies have shown that our near signal could be upwards of 60 to 90% myoglobin driven. And like, that's pretty well accepted at this point. Like the stuff that was saying that it was primarily heme or hemoglobin, they're all heme, but that it was primarily hemoglobin was, it was earlier research. And as the technology has gotten better and as people have looked at it more recently, you're seeing 60 to 90% of the signal being contributed by myoglobin. So it's a cool tool, but we have to keep in mind that it is quite limited, I think, in what all it can tell us. Because if I'm interested in what's happening at the muscle, then I also need to know what's showing up to the muscle. Like, I need to know supply. But with nears, I'm not getting supply, right? Like, I'm, the way I think of it really is, like, I'm getting an idea of extraction. Mm-hmm. And I give an O2 use almost. Yeah, right, but like but you don't know what's showing up because you don't know flow. And that's that's the primary problem because it's really really hard to interpret nears data without seeing what flow is. And like we can't You guys are using Dopplers for that? Yeah, so we have yeah, we have Doppler ultrasound so we can actually scan the femoral artery. Like so like if we're doing like some type of lower body exercise, we can scan femoral artery this large conduit artery and we get an idea of what's showing up to like the quadricep, right? It's still imperfect because we don't know what the flow is through the actual cert, like the microcirculation directly underneath the probe, mm-hmm. but we at least have an idea of like what's showing up. And it's really interesting because 
you see people that will utilize different strategies. Some people rely more on extraction. Some people rely more on flow. And you'll even see them switch, right? Like I've had someone do exercise and they rely primarily on say extraction. So like they have a big change in deoxy. It's a big fast change. Flow is a little bit slower with a smaller delta. And then we do the exercise again and flow is fast and big and now their deoxy signal is smaller. So people are regulating this in different ways. I don't know right now if one way is technically going to be more optimal than another. Like I don't know if extraction versus flow, like which one you quote unquote would want, but they're just, those are all things we have to keep in mind because like when we calculate like an MVO2, so the best way to get an MVO2 right now is if you can play cath lines, right? So if I can place, if I can put catheters in the artery in the vein, then I can get an actual direct fit measurement of an AVO2 difference. So, like that's, define, so an MVO2 would be mitochondrial VO2 max? like Muscle, muscle VO2 max, yeah. So if we wanted to get mito VO2, then you got to start taking biopsies. Okay. So you can, yeah, so you pop a biopsy out of a quad and you take it, you do some stuff with the tissue and then it goes into a machine called an Ouroboros, which is kind of your gold standard, I would say right now in terms of assessing mitochondrial respiration. And so we use it for respiration, and we're also using it to look at kind of ADP sensitivity, because with aging, it looks like you're seeing a decrease in ADP sensitivity, right? Because you have to transport ADP into the mitochondria. And so the ability to transport that looks like it's impaired with aging, and then we are doing some decreased activity stuff now too. And after like two weeks of like a 70% reduction in activity, just like step count, Mm -hmm. Um, with some older individuals, like it fucking tanks both the ADP sensitivity and the respiration for the mitochondria just because they're not pulling in because they're not pulling energy through the system. Yeah. It's like, I'm not sure. Cause we still like, we have to normalize it. So you have to be careful with, with the Ouroboros data or anything that's doing like ex vivo mitochondrial respiration. You have to make sure they're normalizing to mitochondrial content to some degree. Mm Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you'll see papers where they talk about the mitochondrial respiration, but if it's not normalized to something like there are different normalization techniques, but you need to have an idea of how many mitochondria are there because, well, your respiration may be low just because you have less mitochondria, but the mitochondria themselves still may be functioning just fine. You just have a less total volume. Got it. Uh, So that was a lot of science probably for a lot of people like i was yeah. able to stay like i was able to stay like 70 percent with that acronyms um, <laughs> and i'm giving myself the benefit of the doubt uh so yeah just tell me to slow down at any point no, no, I, keep, like, no, I, feel like, I feel like it's like a personal conversation but i forget yeah, other people no, it is. This, so i gotta no, it is the complexity is fun fun and i think the complexity is what people need to respect respect mm-hmm. right because people are selling a simple story with this tech like they're selling so essentially in trained athletes i was trying to like think of an analogy or even a picture that i could paint for people mm-hmm. with this stuff because it's so fucking complicated man yeah and so essentially we have atp in the cell right and, mm-hmm. and so atp we've we've found that it's probably in equilibrium like it's not going to go up or down like your body your cell is going to keep that shit static so how i think of it is i think of you have you essentially have this pool of atp mm-hmm. so we have we have one pool of atp and that's that's got to stay level and yeah. so th- then you got, you got ATP being sucked out from muscular contractions, mm-hmm. right? And so that's sucking ATP out. And then how are you going to replenish this ATP? Well, you're either going to replenish it with the, you know, maybe the glycogen shunt. So you mm-hmm. got that, you got that route, you got aerobic metabolism and you got anaerobic metabolism. So that's how, you, that's how you're going to refill the pool. And then you got then you got creatine phosphate down here, which is probably how we run all that ATP through the muscular contractions. Yeah. And, and now what, what we're thinking is we want to hold off on the production of lactate, right? So that when mm-hmm. we're thinking, we want to hold off the production of lactate as long as possible because we want to use aerobic metabolism and maybe the glycogen shunt for as long as possible so that we don't create H pluses and a ton of inorganic phosphate, which is yeah, what yeah. I think will lead to fatigue, right? Mm-hmm. And so – we have this schematic of energetics in the cell mm-hmm. and, and then people are saying, 
that they're able to essentially see stuff with with moxie with with energetics so they're measuring energetics at the level of the cell they're saying oh you can't you're not able to use o2 effectively at the level yeah. of the cell. like do you think that we can actually say that no not just not just from moxie okay so how so would think- how would you look and see if someone like from an O2 standpoint, do they have a respiratory limitation? Do they have a flow or capillary mm-hmm. limitation? Or do they have an actual mitochondrial cellular limitation? Yeah. So when we talk about O2 transport or delivery, you have kind of like two broad components to it. So there's a perfusive component, which is kind of think more of your bulk flow, right? Like that's just oxygen attached to hemoglobin flowing through my arteries. And then there's a diffusive component, which is oxygen's ability to actually get across a membrane. So if you track the O2 cascade from the atmosphere, right, it's kind of alternating, right? It enters the lungs where we have a diffusive component. Like we got to get oxygen from these alveoli into the pulmonary circulation. And then we have this kind of perfusive component of getting it to the heart and then the heart pumping it to some muscle someplace. And then we have another diffusive component of getting it off the heme over this muscle membrane of some kind towards a mitochondria. And then we have to respect the gradients that exist along that pathway as well, right? Like our pressure gradients that are going to drive this kind of like flow from the atmosphere to the mitochondria. So in terms of measuring those things, like respiratory measurements, like simply you can like throw someone on like a gas mask of some kind. Right, and you can actually look at O2, CO2, how are they moving the gas. Um, you can actually pick out, like, have them do a max test of some kind. You can pick out inflection points, and you can figure out where, like, gas exchange thresholds taking place. Um, if you really know what you're doing, you can start getting into kind of like intensity domains, and you can find something called critical power. So critical power is pretty big in terms of our ability to understand, um, I don't want to say endurance, but to resist fatigue. Like if you can stay below critical power, you resist fatigue for a very long period of time. So that's the almost minute, like your respiratory in like your respiratory lactate threshold would be that. Would it's kind of like, it's a combination of everything really. Okay. It's giving you like a big picture idea of, okay, like I know that critical power is value X. Which would be I, Watts. So this would be like Watts on a bike or something. It depends. Yeah. Yeah. So like the way you do it. And so there's a decent, if you just like Google scholar or PubMed critical power, like you're going to get a fair amount of stuff that pops as far as like how you have to generate the curves for this. Mm -hmm. But the critical power line, like once you cross critical power, then you start reaching, you essentially go towards fatigue very rapidly. Like you don't, you won't reach a steady state for like any of the variables that we're really interested in. Right. So you can get to critical power through using like the gas mask breathing stuff and then doing different types of methods on a bike. But if you're talking about trying to isolate out the different components of this O2 cascade and where the nears comes into that, it gets tricky, right? Because so from a respiratory standpoint, how does the respiratory system potentially limit exercise? Like how does it potentially generate fatigue? So a couple, right? There could be a diffusive component, but in our like normal healthy people, we're not worried about their ability to get oxygen from the alveoli to the pulmonary circulation. But mm-hmm. that's, that's going to be disease states that we don't see. COGD um, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. There could be a shunt, but that's totally structural, right? You could have a shunt that takes blood and doesn't run it near a capillary, not a capillary, sorry, doesn't run it near a um, alveoli and it kind of shoots around. And so that's going to drop O2 sat in the blood. Um, a big one potentially with people that have like large VO2 maxes that you see with high level cyclists are going to be think, transit time of the red cell through the pulmonary circulation, right? So these people with real big cardiac outputs, like your high level cyclists, like you see them at like the top ends of their power output, like they'll, their O2 sat will actually drop because like their red cells are shooting through that pulmonary circulation so fast. They don't have time to load. Mm-hmm. But again, like, there's not a direct way to measure that. You can probably look at global O2 sat and get an idea of potentially something like that is happening. Um, and then the only other way the respiratory system comes into play is going to be the respiratory steel, right? So you start breathing really heavy. Like if you do mass, do a 30, 30, um, like the worst part for me when I do a 30, 30 is like all of my like muscles of respiration start to cramp. 
right? Cause like I'm struggling, all of my, everything just goes in my thorax. And so you only have so much blood flow that you can deliver out. And so we know that like you can get a respiratory steal, right? You start breathing really heavy. Your respiratory muscles are muscles. Like they need oxygen. Mm-hmm. They develop, like they make carbon dioxide. And so you have to actually be able to deliver blood there. And so you will sh- shunt blood away from the working muscle to get it back to your respiratory muscles. So now I'm decreasing O2 delivery to the muscle of interest, right? If I'm on a bike or if I'm squatting, whatever it is I'm doing. Um, that, can, that story can get potentially a little bit more complicated also because like the decrease in blood flow is likely due to some degree like the respiratory muscles you will get some like group three and four afferent activity which is then responsible like it feeds back to the brain now we get like a vasoconstriction signal down someplace which is limiting blood flow um, but measuring that stuff is really tricky uh, especially like in a gym setting like the only way i can think of potentially looking at a respiratory limitation with like not super expensive equipment is going to be somehow being able to look at your O2 sat. And if O2 sat drops, then you are potentially looking at a respiratory limiter of some kind. Does that make sense? So is that, do you feel like that's trainable? Like very little, I think very little. So you're not, you're, there's this idea that expelling CO2 is the limiter. And then if we can get better at expelling CO2, like, a la the Spyro Tiger, mm-hmm. like all of a sudden you're going to be better at whatever. Yeah, I think the Spyro Tiger brings two pieces to that equation. So one, like if you get better at exhaling, then potentially you blow off more CO2, which is beneficial, right? Because you know that's our fastest and you can way to eat that better. Mm, when you say effect, like you're going to be able to pull if you're less yeah, yeah, yeah. acidic. If you're less yeah. acidic. Yeah, like respiratory is our number one fastest way, and you know that, right? It's our fastest way to deal with an acid problem generated because of carbon dioxide. So how trainable is that? Um, Like the structure of the lungs does not change. Like we know that I think pretty confidently now. I'm not changing the structure of anyone's lung. Um, Like your lung volume is kind of like, it's your lung volume, right? What you can potentially train, and like the literature on this is, you have stories on both sides. So like if you use a spire tiger and you do some type of respiratory muscle training, it's similar to training any of our other muscles and like you improve the endurance or capacity of those muscles. So they don't fatigue as easily and they don't steal as much blood. So you don't get that respiratory steal. You don't get the respiratory steal. Right. So that has been shown in the literature. Like people have shown positive outcome on that and no outcome, but like we're talking small nuggets. Like if which you're, may, which may matter for an advanced athlete. Oh, dude, yeah. If you're a high level athlete and like you're talking that like one, two, three seconds could be potentially separating you from standing on a podium or not, then yeah, like that shit matters. <laughs> um, from a supply standpoint, right? Like we're thinking cardiac output. Uh, we're thinking like angiogenesis world. Like how many capillaries can I surround this myocyte with? so that I can have as much potential surface area as possible for oxygen to diffuse. So a cardiac output limitation. Which is why I think CrossFit is so insane because you're probably getting yeah. with the high rep stuff. You're probably getting, that's the, that's the thing that they're getting that no other sport has probably gotten before is that insane level of capitalization. I might be wrong yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine like your CrossFitters and then it would be interesting too. Cause like I would imagine your bodybuilding population has like a very, cause So it's very difficult to tease apart the stress that's going to drive a mitochondrial biogenesis and then the stress that also drives angiogenesis or like the growth of new capillaries, right? Like the number one stressor for both of those is hypoxia, right? Like if if you're not going to generate a hypoxic, yeah, like it's hypoxia and it's primarily intensity driven. Um, If you don't want to rely on intensity, you can get there with like frequency and duration also. Like those are, those are the three big ways we have to try to deal with and change that potentially. But yeah, like for, I think most trained individuals, I think that they are likely, and from what the literature says, like it's going to be a supply limitation more than anything. It's about cardiac output and it's about increasing the amount of capillaries and a muscle so we can drive as much blood flow there as possible. Got um, it. And then, like, to assess a mitochondrial, like, you cannot assess a mitochondrial limitation unless you start pulling tissue out of someone's leg 
or arm or like muscle of choice. Cause there's literally no other way for us to know what the mitochondria are truly capable of unless we take it, we put it in this machine and we totally saturate it with substrate and oxygen. And we see, okay, like what can you really ramp out? So you don't think like that cuff strategy for with like a moxie is so seeing how fast someone desaturates and if they desaturate. Oh yeah. Doing like a, um, God, I'm totally blanking. I know what you're talking about. So if you cuff it, you release the cuff and then you're basically seeing how fast things take place after that. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to know flow. So you'd have to know flow too. To know. Know. Yeah. Yeah. So that technique can work. It's like a, but it's a, God dang it. I'm totally, I read a paper and it's like a month ago. Um, it's just like an occlusion reperfusion technique of some kind. Yeah. So if you're going to do it, I actually had a, actually presented a paper dealing with hypertensive people that use that technique. And they tried to use it to say that there's mitochondrial or metabolic limitations in these people, right? Because that could be a potentially interesting story that you have a mitochondria that doesn't work well, so they don't utilize oxygen well. And so they have to increase pressure to try to drive more supply to the tissue. Mm. Mm. However, right, like I presented the paper and then we proceeded to just like rip it to shreds. And it was in a good journal. It was in hypertension um, over the next like 45 minutes because we, they didn't measure flow. Mm-hmm. And so it's very difficult to say anything about what's going on with the oxygen story if you don't know flow. Because you need to know supply. Like what's showing up to the tissue and then what are they capable of pulling out of the tissue? And the, the nears and the moxie is giving us an idea of like what are they capable of pulling out? But you have to know like what's showing up also to be able to tell a complete story. Got it. So you're not getting, you're not getting enough of the data to actually be able to say anything concretely about what is the limiter there. No, no. Like I just, from my vantage point, like if I were to have someone go on a bike and say, just do like a five, 10 minute all out, like a Wingate test on a bike and I have like a moxie on the quad, like from that test, I'm not going to be able to walk away knowing or determining what their limiters are. Got it. Right, so, because like I, I will leave with more questions than I had going into it, probably. So we ha- we would essentially, in theory, we would have uh, you could have a limiter at the probably not, but maybe a limiter at the lungs. Then you could have an, like an anemia limiter where you can't carry like a hemoglobin. Like so, we know that like those those those, those guys from Norway who like are like bright red because they carry so much fucking hemoglobin, mm-hmm. uh, and they win all the gold medals, and so. And then you have the opposite of that where you have anemia. So how would you, could you pick up anemia with like, with a moxie or too dirty? Um, it's tough, right? So the issue with the moxie signal is that like, it's incredibly hetero, like very heterogeneous. So like if I put it on one part of my quad and I do a test and then I literally move it like two inches to the left of another part of my quad, it's going to be totally different. I could even move it along like the same muscle. I can just move along vastus lateralis up and down. And like, it's going to be different everywhere I put it. And it's going to be different if I put it on rec fem. And so that's where it's tough to take something like that and start drawing global conclusions. Because like, if I put it on one part of my vastus lateralis, it's going to look one way. If I put it on another part, it's going to look another way. And so how do I walk away confidently being able to say like, okay, this very, very small probe that's giving me a very small idea of what's happening underneath it on this one muscle that you have, like how am I going to extrapolate that out to make claims about what the rest of the muscles in your body are capable of doing? Um, Like I think that it could potentially be an interesting tool when we start talking about like determining rest times or picking times like cutoff sets. Like there, I think it could potentially be useful because I at least have a deoxy signal I can watch. And I know when like it's not recovering well or I know when it has recovered. And so those are things I think you could potentially use it for. So use it for, as better than a heart rate for interval training. Yeah, maybe, right? Like if, if you're trying to stay in an oxidative environment, if I'm doing intervals of that nature, then like your deoxy signal should probably be recovered before you start going again. Because if it's not then right for whatever reason you're so you're not back to baseline you're still extracting more right the muscle is still trying to recover to some degree 
it's still trying it's still it's still trying to remake atp it's not in yeah. a, it's not in a homeostatics setting yeah right like we're just we're not back yet and like the other thing that's difficult with the moxie i think is that like the micro circulation environment is like really complex and we don't understand like flow in microcirculation that well yet like there are people that are spending their career studying it and we're learning more and more about it but like flow in the microcirculation is outrageously complicated you gotta think right like even just a contraction trying to understand like okay well if i squeeze this one side i'll shoot blood out this way but i'm momentarily stopping blood from coming in here and then i open and well when i open now i probably have like a small pressure vacuum on one side and so i'm going to pull flow in and it's just the dynamics there are so complicated and inside of an individual muscle fiber. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's wild. Like trying to think about what's going on there. And the only way we can look at microcirculation stuff right now is in like mice, rats and animal models. And so like what some people will say is that your total, so like, you know, the near signal, right? Like you have sat, you have O2, you have DSAT, and then you have, or you have oxygenated hemoglobin or not hemoglobin, oxygenated heme, because it needs it, like when we talk about it, it should include hemoglobin and myoglobin. Then you have deoxygenated hemoglobin and myoglobin. And then you have like a total THC, like the total heme, the whole total heme content. And so people will sometimes say that, well, that's our metric of flow, but it's not. It's not a metric of flow. That's a concentration directly underneath the probe. It's not a rate. That's how much, and, that's how much total heme you have. It doesn't necessarily yeah. tell me, okay. It doesn't necessarily tell me flow, right? Do they, they tend to track together, right? So like if oxy and deoxy are both going up and totals going up, you can probably pretty confidently say, okay, like my flow is going up in that area. But we also know that like total can change without flow changing. How right. That and that's, that's really hard to wrap your head around like that. There's, like I've, the cells are making more hemoglobin. Like how, no, so it's it's a term called longitudinal recruitment, and so it's basically like you're, and they've actually shown that's like under a microscope, like flow into the microcirculation isn't different, but the amount of like red cell along the length of a capillary will increase. Right, so like you basically start packing more red cells in along the length of a capillary, so you increase surface area, and that can happen without flow changing. And so that would change your total signal, but your flow is no different. So that's where, yeah, like it's, it's this kind of like big dark rabbit hole that is like very difficult to tease apart. Like when you start considering all of the factors and variables that are coming into play. Got it. And so if we're trying to, if we're trying Obviously, this is a complex story, and people are going to try to sell, sell simple stories to sell <clears throat> units and to sell you on some kind of training method that they use. Yeah. Uh, that's just science enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, this is a story that gets told again and again. Um, and so if, if you were going to use this tech, like, one, would you use it? For, yeah, so I think, or say a CrossFitter who wants to see it better. Because yeah. that, that's, that's kind of primarily who's kind of using this stuff is, mm-hmm. is going to be mixed modal athletes, people who care about being good at a bunch of different stuff. Yeah. And so like, I think like the coaches that are trying to use it, like I like totally like commend in their efforts, right? Because they're doing, like they're working really hard to bring data into their practice, like, it's like they're trying to fine-tune their ability to make recommendations based off of what the science and the data is telling them to do. Um, I'm not going to say, like, don't ever use it because it's a, it is a really powerful tool. Like, my recommendation to people would be, like, spend your time doing your homework so you really understand the limitations of the tool you're using. And then, like, just collect data. Just keep collecting, keep collecting, keep collecting. Look for trends. Look for, like, different things you can potentially use over time, right? Like the same thing happened when um, like Omega Wave first came on the scene. You know, it's like when Omega Wave first came on, um, I'm totally blanking on his name, the coach up with uh, Seattle, the soccer team, one of the first guys that started using, you know, the Sounders, right? Like I think I remember hearing he used that for almost like two years. He just collected data for two years before he used it to make any recommendations. And so like while the, the nearest technology is attractive, it does come with a lot of limitations. And so, I would not throw a nears on somebody just the nears. Like you can use the nears in combination with other things. What would those other things be? 
like if you could put in ears on and then I could also have a gas mask on somebody. And then if you can, you would also need to have a, something that can tell you like, it's tough because like people aren't going to know supply. That's a big limiter, right? Like there's no good way right now to under, to know flow. And the Other next best having a Doppler. Yeah. Which are like 20 something thousand dollars, like more than $20,000. Like they're super ridiculous, stupid, expensive. Um, like there are specific techniques you can use with the nears to get flow, but like they're not applicable to our population because it involves like cuffing and then you release the cuff and you take like the first two seconds of data and you like run a slope off of it and you get an idea of what's changing. Um, so like if you can get a gas mask on to get an idea of what's going on from a respiratory standpoint, if you can use a nears, that's nice. But yeah, the big limiter is you still don't know flow. You don't know what the delivery is. And that is probably like one of, that is without question, like one of the most important variables in that equation. Um, and right now, like there's just not a good way for people to measure that um, conveniently or cheaply. Got it. So I'm not, yeah, like it's, it's tough. It's really tough when you start trying to decide like oxygen limiters because there are just so many pieces to that cascade that you have to appreciate. And unless you actually can get the whole cascade, then like you can't go around talking about how you've identified this limiter because what you identified may just be one piece of a puzzle, but you just don't know all the variables of the equation. And, and that's kind of my biggest thing is, is so if, if we have this insanely complex question, the ultimate conundrum that is CrossFit, like mm-hmm. how, how are you good at all these things? Right. And so we like Alex Hutchinson's book like is amazing. Like the, the fatigue book, like it's crazy. Like, and so is is all of this noise, is it really helpful when maybe what we're after is a reduction in RPE? Like that's what, that's the main training quality that we're trying to get. And so we're fucking hooking people, all these gadgets and maybe that gadget just makes them train a little harder than they were before. Mm -hmm. Like kind of like gym aware, like if they, if I put you on gym aware, you just work fucking harder because you try mm-hmm. to beat, how <laughs> to beat the number. Is it, is yep. gym aware actually causing it or is it just seeing data and making you work hard? Yeah. Right. Is the, is the tool just increasing buy-in? Is it increasing belief in the coach? Because it's like, Oh, this dude's legit because like, look at him behind this computer. He's doing all this stuff. Like I am 100% bought in on what we're doing because I think that this guy like knows his shit, which matters. Yeah, that matters. 100%, I don't care how you do it. If like if they work harder, they work harder. Like if I put a moxie on it, it means you hit an extra three reps on your back spot today. Then hey, like I'll put a moxie on you all day long. <laughs> and I think um, I think that it would. Like that's what I've kind of I've gotten from the gym aware is like it's it's a lie detector test. Like mm-hmm. that that's ultimately what it is. Is like ah, you stopped your bench at point two, bro. Like I know you can go. Like that's great. That's an eight RP, but that's not a ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and so I think that do you think moxie has the ability to do that like someone someone maybe their d sat didn't go down to what it normally does and you know they're sandbagging um maybe but again right so i can watch what deoxy's doing but if i don't know the delivery to the muscle then it's like they may just be increasing extraction because their flow is low for some reason right like maybe sympathetic tone right now is high because they're overtrained and so, like, they can't override, they can't lice that sympathetic signal enough to deliver to oxygen to vasodilate, right? Because, like, you have to sympathetic a lice at a working muscle in order to deliver blood to it. And so, if I don't know what you're doing from a delivery standpoint, all I'm getting is essentially, and mox, like, nears is not only extraction. Like, I don't want to make it sound like it's that simple. It can do a lot more than that. But for the context of what we're talking about, like, it kind of is, that's the only way I really... Not the only way, but that's the primary way I look at it. Without knowing flow, that's the big measurement that you're getting. Yeah, right? Like, I have an idea of what you're extracting, which is cool. Like, that matters. Like, it's not that it doesn't matter. But that in isolation doesn't really do anything for me because I don't understand the whole picture. I have, like, one very small tidbit of information that in isolation doesn't, I think, bring a ton to the table. So right. if, you, if you were trained, let's just, let's just talk like real S and C, not science. Yeah. So, so if we're trying to get somebody say better at a 2000 meter row, they're already mm-hmm. like, 
technique, all that shit, it's already taken care of. Like they're they're good at rowing. We, yeah. can, we can we can be simpler. I'm trying to get you better at uh, five mile ear nine. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm gonna check. Like maybe I'm gonna work on that respiratory system. I'm gonna make sure they can carry oxygen. I'm gonna check for anemias, especially mm-hmm. in females. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm making the hunch that. My, the mitochondria in this trained individual is not their their ability to use O2 at the mitochondrial level is not the limiter. It's the, yeah. it's their it's ability to get O2 there. Yeah, it's looking like mitochondria are not the limiter in the cascade from in trained individuals. In trained individuals, and some of the data we have right now, it looks like mitochondria are they have a kind of reserve capacity on top of what we are able to supply to them. So it's your ability to get, so essentially the limiter is going to be your ability to get oxygen there. Yeah. It's like, how much can you supply? Because from what we know right now with trained individuals, like the mitochondria can take more than what you can get it. And so how would you train that quality? That's, that's the tough part, right? Because I don't think people want to hear it because it's maybe kind of like boring and it's not like anything new, but like fall back on a lot of stuff we already know and do. You know, it's like use different intervals, like do stuff that's go over different time domains, right? Like appreciate the fact that if I'm doing something long and slow and I'm chasing that quality, right? I'm going more after a heart adaptation, right? I'm trying to get the heart to pump more blood to increase cardiac output so I can increase supply globally. If you want to chase a more like specific local adaptation, right? Like you can see really interesting stuff when you start doing like dynamic single leg, like knee extension models like we have in the lab. It's basically like cycling, but with one leg. And like the flows you get to one leg are literally like, it's insane. The flow gets so high. And so like, if I'm chasing a very specific adaptation at a, so the like pump that's real, the flow is so high. Yeah. The pump is very real. <laughs> right. So it's like, if you're trying to really drive adaptation in a specific quote, unquote, capitalization, 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 right. Cause that looks like it's the game at this point is, Hey, be. but because we're not other, changing hearts, dude. Like, if you're past the age of 19, like, you're not changing your heart. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's tough, right? I mean, you can go live at elevation for a little while. Like, Well, then you're just changing EPO. Like, yeah, then we get – like, then you can get drugs. Then you're just changing yeah. your, your hemoglobin content. Like, yeah, but you – Lots of a, that. Yeah, it's a great way to make but, – but altitude is a drug-free option to increase your ability to supply to the muscle. It's terrible. But – <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah no tell me about it. that's where i live at um but so i think like it, a lot of it just comes back to stuff that we've known has worked for a very long time um like we know that hypoxia is the strongest signal that we can send to drive angiogenesis and mitochondrial biogenesis and then i think that like when i see athletes my goal is like let's give you things over different time domains, right? Like we're going to have our long, slow days, right? We're just chasing more of my duration or potentially frequency aspect of that component. And then we're going to have some days that are vastly more intensity focused because we know that intensity is like the number one, most powerful way for us to tell the body that it needs to adapt. Right. And so that's where like, we're hitting, I'll have guys, we're hitting like one minute, two minute, three minute, four minute, or five minute, like all outs, like on an echo bike or on a rower or whatever it's going to be. Um, and that's, even like, that's or a 10, or a 10. That, that's, yeah. that's another thing. Like doing the test, like you have, yeah. doing the test is going to decrease how hard you think the test is. Yeah. Right. Like they'll just hit all out intervals where it's like, Hey, you have one minute, two minute, three minute, four minute, five. Like, well, I'll go anywhere from one minute, probably be a little short. I'll go anywhere from like two to three minutes up to 10 minutes. And be like, Hey, like, you've got to go max calories and max distance in this time. And you let them pace it themselves. You pace it however you need to, right? But you're like, this is a max effort attempt. And then you're going to be done and you're going to rest until you're fully recovered. And then we're going to do it again. Right. And it's like, I don't need the technology. The technology can help me maybe determine my recovery time. Mm -hmm. But like at the end of the day, like this is something that we've known has worked for quite some time now and it still works. Right. Like, I think like that is our fastest way to drive these adaptations without question. Or I mean like in, where it gets interesting, I think is where you start talking about some hypertrophy bodybuilding work as well. Because I'm not, I like, I need to spend more time thinking about it. Kind of like how those two worlds collide because like I would be very confident that if we were to take a biopsy on Ryan, right? Like homeboy would be capitalized out the ass. 
I mean, yeah, that dude, that dude can yeah. move more weight in a yeah. like a 30, 30, 60 minute, 30, 30. It's incredible. Minute. Right. Yeah. Like it's, it's nuts, but and he doesn't the, train aerobically really much yeah. at all. Like his yeah. But that's what, that's what gets interesting is that like, I don't know that what, do you think Ryan would perform really well on a quote unquote aerobic test? even though we know Ryan is going to have plenty of capillaries and plenty of mitochondria. Yeah. It's like, it's like he has the foundation for it there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think like if you put him on a five minute all out, like what, what are we classifying as a robot a marathon? Like, no. Well, it depends. Like are we going more like power oriented aerobic stuff or more capacity oriented aerobic. I think that Ryan would be, like, and for those of you who don't know Ryan, he's the, he's one of the only individuals who I know who has a natural effort for my over 27. Um, freak. Yes. Still, silly. Um, and so I think that that guy would be insanely good across it, just with his ability oh, yeah. Yeah. to endure pain and like yeah. do that stuff. Do I think that he's going to be good at, I don't know, like a, a 5k anything? Probably not. Like, yeah, I mean, he'd just get bored halfway in. <laughs> I mean, he might, he might be yeah. like you. I think you, I think you run into this part, and I think even in crossfit, you run into it too. Is like, eventually, muscle becomes a limiter because you have to carry it. So, mm-hmm. like cyclists, like the sport kind of picks what it wants, and yeah. so you, you probably like it's crazy. Like all the crossfitters, they, you know, if you're five nine, one ninety, you kind of fit the build, and then they got these other guys who are probably very similar as far as the amount of muscle they have on mm-hmm. their frame. Their frame, yeah. and I think the sport kind of self selects it, and they kind of self select it probably with pulling, like yeah. with, with that upper body pulling stuff. Um, so it, it'd be it'd be really interesting. I think he'd probably have to lose weight. I think he, if you want if you want to do crossfit, I think he'd probably have to he'd have to lose muscle because he has too much muscle. Yeah, it'd be a lot of stuff to move around. But like one, so one thing I would probably add to the fatigue conversation. And so, like, we have obviously spent a lot of time talking about O2 Cascade auction supply stuff here. But we got to remember, like, when we're talking RPEs and we're talking fatigue, like, it goes beyond just the capacity to get oxygen to the muscle and then utilize that oxygen. Because we know that you start talking about things like group three and four afarin activity and the sensitivity of those and how the brain is responding to that message. Like that changes with training, I would imagine. Um, like for example, like in the lab, so you can use fentanyl. So you can do like a, an intrathecal injection of fentanyl and it'll actually block the signal coming back from the group three and four afferents to the brain. And you so can, you, have, can put some, you can work something harder. Yeah. So you put them on a bike and say, Hey, you're gonna do a five kilometer time trial after you put fentanyl in and then you see what their power output does. Right. And so it's like, they basically lose, they don't pace it. So like, they just like come out of the gates and fucking on fire, but they're not receiving. So like the role of that peripheral feedback is to try to keep you out of like very dangerous levels of fatigue. And so it's cool because like those group three and four afferents send information back to the brain, which actually changes central command, right? Like your motor output will actually change based off the signals that those guys are sending from like, so your capacity to generate power is being, is falling. And that's because you, you think that's trainable with reduction in RPs and tell your brain that, yeah. that you're not going to die. Yeah. And so like, maybe like you either get better at buffering the sensitivity of the afferents changes, the number of afferents changes or the way in which the brain processes the signals it receives changes. But like, we know that those play a really, really big role and like the central command that's coming down from up top, which is a signal being sent to the muscle telling it to contract and generate force. Um, it's like, that's another like really cool aspect of fatigue that guys like um, Marcus Amon and his lab research. And it's, it's in, like the fatigue thing is really, it's really cool. It's really interesting. Like all the different factors that you really need to start thinking about and considering. And the amount um, that we just purely don't know. Like yeah. the amount that we don't know is, is, is crazy. So it comes back to like the idea that these people have a technology and then they're going to try to tell you that this is why you're fatigued. Like, yeah, it boggles. Like there, like from my vantage point, like there is no technology, no singular technology in the planet right now that you can use to do a like Wingate test and then come out and be like, yep, this is your limiter. It doesn't exist, right? Like you need lots of tech and you need expensive tech and you need probably a couple of days and you're probably going to have to be able to place catheters 
and like it you got to take some muscle yeah, you're, tissue you're gonna have some biopsies too you have to have some biopsies right like there's i think that there's a way to get there right now but it is not anything that <laughs> it's gonna anyone, cost probably a million dollars yeah, it's gonna cost a lot of money and nobody like operating a gym is gonna be able to do it because like you need an anesthesiologist present to do certain things you need doctors around like so yeah, you're not, not going to spike somebody's knee. You're like, you're not, you're not hitting, you're not hitting somebody's right. Like you know. Johnny Meathead's not doing an intrathecal injection of fentanyl so that we can test <laughs> like your group three for afferent feedback. Um, but yeah, so I think that the move to want to use more tech and collect more data is great. Like I, I don't think I'm ever going to want to like attack somebody or push them down for trying to be more sciencey. Like I think that's always good. But I would just say that we need to keep in mind the limitations and what it can and cannot do. Like for people who are interested in near stuff, I actually have the review right here. Um, really good review published by Thomas Barstow from Kansas State. Uh, it just came out in 2019, February. So it's basically, it's titled Understanding Near Infrared Spectroscopy and its Application to Skeletal Muscle Research. Like that is a very recent... It's a very recent review that is like for anybody who's interested in the tech, like you are going to get brought up to speed very rapidly. And I think he does a very good job of highlighting strengths, weaknesses, what we can and cannot use it for and things along those lines. Yeah. And just to kind of, I would agree with you totally. It's like, Hey, I don't want to bitch at somebody for like trying to yeah. be better. I'm not going to bitch at you for trying to be better to collect data, to be more empirical. Like I think that that's awesome. Yeah. But, but it, it comes down to this thing, like we have this insanely complex system, same thing with nutrition, right? And so why you think it's working might not be why it's working. Mm -hmm. like, that's the, like, you think that low carb is working because of the, some kind of magic. No, it's working because of something else. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's the, the thing that I, that I really got from, from talking to you is like, Hey, look, I didn't know the complexity of the situation. And I'm so like thankful that you, uh, dedicated two years of your life to under <laughs> understanding that complexity. Yeah, partially, uh, partially understand. <laughs> yeah, it, but it, I think that anyone who jumped, like, like my field, I, my field was all nutrition, right? And so I mm -hmm. came out of, I came out of my PhD. I'm like, God, I don't know that much. Like, I just spent four years looking at meal timing, and we didn't mm -hmm. even fucking find anything. Like, yeah. like legit. And so anybody, it just makes you talk to anybody who's who's really engrossed in, in, in their kind of like their microcosm of their, their, whatever they're studying. And they're like, Hey, I don't even know that much. And so then you come up for air and then you go into Instagram and you're like, wow, that guy knows a lot about this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're like, really, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, fun. Like that's, I was, I was actually thinking about that the other day, kind of like when you, I think like it's part of the natural like maturation of education is you get really good at being comfortable saying, I don't know. And I think like once you get comfortable saying, I don't know, is when you really open the doors to learning because you realize that there is so much you don't know. And like when you talk to an expert, like a true expert, someone that's done something for like 35 years, it's been their entire career. Like they'll tell me, I don't know more than anybody I've ever met just because they're very humble in what they know. And then they also know what they, they know very clearly what they don't know. And like, they're just very comfortable within that realm. And so that's another thing I think in the industry, people have got to be comfortable with. Like, just say, I don't know. Like, it's totally okay to be able to say, I don't know and we don't know because there's a lot of things that we don't know and probably won't know in our lifetime, which is unfortunate, but it's just the truth. Hey, it's, it's a, hey, CrossFitters, we don't have an answer. Uh, <laughs> you're not going to get an answer. Work harder. Yeah. Uh, and maybe, maybe like that, that's one of the things that's been, that's been getting at me too is, is that, we have these, we, sometimes we have this tech and we have all this data, right? And I think it, a lot, the, the mindset stuff is so crazy to me because if you think that you're weak, you're going to be weaker. And so I, mm -hmm. I think that we have to be very, very careful with the delivery of this data uh, because that is going to set off a, a psychological thing that we have to be very, very cognizant of. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so that's a whole nother fucking ball of worms, but the upside of stress is, is super good on that. If you want to read more about that and that'll scare, that'll scare the shit out of you. If you've been selling people a scary message. And I know I've done that. I've done that in the past. Like I sold the overtraining message too. And, yeah. and, and I, I get really, I get really, I don't know that anybody's really overtraining. Like 
I don't know. Like maybe you're under recovering, but I don't know that anybody is really overtraining. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like within reason, right? Like as long as you're not just being a complete and utter like jackass, then, but even like, even then, like, I don't, it's tough, dude. Like it's fun because I think the tech also is, it's an intellectual outlet for a lot of the coaches who are using it. Cause they are like very bright, very smart people. And like, they want to go down those rabbit holes. And so I think a lot of times it may be more for them than it is for anything else. And like, I can totally appreciate that. Right. Cause like you're on the floor for a really long time, just doing the same thing over and over again. Like sometimes having some tech and data to look at is like a really nice, like mental stimulation that's missing potentially from your day. I love doing uh, wave because it gave me a six minute break before every fucking session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Be, it's going to be like really interesting, I think, to kind of like see where things go from here. But like the tech and all is great, but at the same time, like the best thing, the things that have always worked still work. Like very few things I think have changed over the past like 40 to 50 years in our understanding of these things. They're just kind of like being repackaged and talked about slightly differently. But like you go back and look at a lot of stuff coming out of Russia, like during back in the day and those old texts like that stuff's still golden like we don't need to reinvent the wheel for the sake of reinventing the wheel like we can obviously like add add to the conversation where we can and try to fine-tune pieces where we can but like a lot of those methods and techniques like your bread and butter like 80 to 90 percent of what you do like should be pretty pretty based in the foundations agreed yeah cool Appreciate uh, you. Gracias. No, appreciate you, man. This is great. This is fun. Um, have a good time. Good time fishing. Uh, where can James? Where can people find out more about you and and everything that you're up to? Uh, so Rebel Performance is the website. I started that back in the day. Uh, Instagram, just James Serby. I'm on there as well. I'm not incredibly active on there. I'm working on it, trying to be better about being present in social media. I just don't really enjoy it that much. Um, yeah, those are the two big ones. And then uh, we recently started up the Silverback Training Project. So it's just kind of something for dudes who are interested in uh, bringing back some competition, community, and environment. Like the big factors that I think we all know are super important but get overlooked because we're worried about like what variation of a split squat you're doing as opposed to just saying, hey, like here's 30 awesome dudes. You guys just go train and get after it and have some fun. <laughs> Uh, so we started Silverback Training Project primarily to try to bring that back to the story for people. So those are the big three, Rebel Performance, James Serby on Instagram, Silverback Training Project you can find through Rebel Performance as well. And then we have some other things in the work that are going to be pretty exciting coming out July, August-ish, depending on kind of some timeline stuff. All right, man. Hey, I appreciate you. And uh, I'll hopefully see you soon in the jungle. House, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait to get back. Gracias. Thank you. Pura vida, mãe.